telehealth was brought to the forefront of healthcare delivery models during the COVID-19 pandemic as patients were hesitant to leave their homes and the need for isolation and social distancing required more virtual care. During the public health emergency, telehealth has been reimbursed, but the future of that reimbursement is uncertain as the expected end of the public health emergency looms. So, how do rural hospitals understand and advocate for reimbursement to sustain telehealth as a standard care delivery option? With an understanding of policy, direct advocacy efforts, and sheer determination. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 83 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. All right, Rachel, obviously telehealth has been extremely extremely instrumental for patients and their families uh, since the start of the pandemic and has become uh, a commonplace among healthcare providers uh, right now uh, in their ability uh, to get reimbursement for such changes uh, has impacted the way that we operate. So I want to take you through a little journey. We're going to discuss that today. Um, You know, we are constantly striving to provide uh, superior care, and Mm -hmm. you're going to hear our story today about uh, how we can accomplish that in a rural community where technology is a challenge uh, and where we have some limitations. But also uh, today we're going to talk about what the COVID-19 post-pandemic uh, environment looks like and obviously how we can make this a viable option uh, for healthcare providers as we move forward. So um, obviously uh, we're looking at how uh, our destiny looks uh, mm-hmm. into the future and I'm excited today to discuss this topic. That's right. And we are keeping a very close eye on this right now, in particular as the public health emergency comes to a close in January. And today we're talking with someone who has been advocating for telehealth policy and payment models that support rural health care's needs for their patients and their communities. Absolutely. Our guest today is Josh Jorgensen, Government Affairs and Policy Director for the National Rural Health Association. And we had the distinct privilege of meeting with Josh in Washington, D.C. Yes. When we were there advocating for rural health and for Hillsdale Hospital. So, Josh, we'd like to welcome you to Rural Health Rising today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, second time seeing you all this week and uh, second time being on the show. So I must be doing something right. Right, right. One week ago today, we were in your offices. How cool was that? That was cool. So to start, Josh, why don't you quickly reintroduce yourself to our audience for those who did not hear the last episode or maybe who are new listeners to the show. Um, Tell us a little bit about your background um, and your work at NRHA. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, Josh Jorgensen, I serve currently as the Government Affairs and Policy Director at the National Rural Health Association. And uh, quick background on NRHA before I talk about myself, just for folks who might not Uh, be overly familiar or listening for the first time. Uh, National Rural Health Association is a membership organization of about 21,000 folks nationwide. And we really have advocacy, in my opinion, in all the nooks and crannies of what is rural health care. So we have folks like yourself, right, a Hillsdale Hospital, a health system, critical access hospitals, rural health clinics. But we also have folks in academia and research, state offices of rural health, rural health associations, and then doctors, patients, and nurses, and just, you know, kind of your grassroots want to advocate type individuals. So um, that can make finding consensus on the issues that we work <laughs> on sometimes a little bit difficult. Uh, but largely speaking, you know, we, we put our work into three big buckets. It's rural health equity. It's preserving the rural health safety net. 
And then it's growing that rural health workforce and pipeline to ensuring that we have folks here um, moving forward. So that's a little bit about NRHA. As for myself, um, you know, I've been with the association now two and a half years, which is uh, crazy. Wow. It's flown by and yeah. it's all been during the pandemic or now the yeah. public health emergency, as we call it. And as that's kind of right. coming to an end, I guess I'll transition into a post public health emergency life at NRHA. But um, before me being at NRHA, I worked on Capitol Hill for a senator from South Dakota, which is where I'm from, uh, Senator Mike Rounds, and, and did his health care portfolio amongst a couple of other items and uh, made the transition after doing that for about four years with a constituency that really felt close to home because South Dakota is about as rural as it can get. And so yeah, uh, yeah. working on rural health care with NRHA kind of felt like a natural transition. So um, that's what I do now is advocate on the other side of things to ensure that we have our hospitals staying open and that the uh, resources they need are provided to them. So thanks for having me and looking forward to the conversation. Well, welcome again. And uh, certainly your advocacy is much appreciated by rural hospitals like Hillsdale. Um, now that we've established who you are and what you do, let's start with a why. And we do this on each of our podcasts to get to know our guests just a little bit better. So Josh, I want to ask you this question. You know, what motivates you? Uh, what gets you up out of bed in the morning to do what you do? What's your why? Yeah, I mean, I guess we can, we'll have to go back and compare the tapes to see how similar they are. But I, I think <laughs> right. really my why is just that I'm from, you know, South Dakota, I'm from a rural area. And, you know, I like to think that I understand the um, the complexities of these issues. And really, the way I look at it is, if, you know, you don't have health care in a community, that community's not really a community anymore. You know, I, I look at it as not only is providing the health care to the population, which, as we know, oftentimes has, you know, a uh, higher prevalence of underlying health conditions and, and have lower socioeconomic, um, you know, standards compared to their urban and suburban areas, but just being that hospital in the area is a, a community source. It's an employment source. And so I look at the work that I do as kind of keeping that rural community alive that, you know, I grew up in and, and meant a lot to me and, and still does to my family. And whenever I go home, you know, uh, understanding that if the hospital's not there, you know, the hardware store is not going to be there. And so that's kind of right. what keeps me up in the morning is just making sure that we continue to have access to healthcare in those communities. And not only for the community to thrive, but for the patient to thrive and ensure that they have good healthcare outcomes um, as well. And so, you know, if, if you're listening today to the podcast and you're not familiar with the work that is done by the National Rural Health Association, I want you to know that uh, what Josh does is very instrumental. Um, Rachel and I have participated on many of his calls uh, in which he talks about advocacy. And that is so critically important because to Josh's point uh, just a minute ago, whatever happens here at our hospital, whether we're successful or if it fails, has a dramatic impact on this community and right. communities across America. And we see that, Rachel. It's why we started the podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, when hospitals close and shut down or move out of their communities or have a merger and an acquisition, loss of jobs, loss of economy, uh, so goes the community. Right. And so the work that Josh and his team are doing, and we got to see that firsthand, uh, it's incredible. And I would encourage those listening today uh, to participate in those calls. If you're a rural mm -hmm. hospital uh, and you're really trying to understand all the dynamics involved in payers and what's happening on Capitol Hill, I would encourage you to to log yes. in and to go to their yep. website. Sign and up for those grassroots calls. They are very helpful. Very, very helpful. So, you know, Josh, let's start with a background on telehealth. Uh, you know, that's something that during the pandemic, we all heard about it. 
and we had to live it. You know, Rachel and I had about 24 hours uh, to develop <laughs> a product, and we did, uh, and a marketing, uh, you know, yep. really advantage. Along to... with uh, Seth Gibson, our director of outpatient services, <laughs> Absolutely. he moved Can't... so quick. He did, and we had to, right? Yep. Uh, we had no other choice. But, you know, for, for our discussion with Josh today, um, you know, what was the state of telehealth before the pandemic, if you could really set that stage for us, and how was it perceived and utilized in the healthcare industry? Yeah, you know, I was working on Capitol Hill at the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, I think for for years, there was this desire from folks in the industry, as well as folks on Capitol Hill, I think, to um, expand telehealth and kind of look at the utilization and try to move forward with it. Um, you know, there was significant progress happening, building up to the pandemic, kind of with those Medicare flexibilities and distance site regulations that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more that were really expanded overnight via um, the CARES Act and some of those other critical pieces of legislation at the beginning of the pandemic. But it kind of was just sitting in limbo for the longest time because I think there was this um, really DC speak way of saying, how much is this going to cost and what's it going to look like and how efficient will telehealth be? And um, what the pandemic did as a true silver lining, because I don't want to say anything really good came out of the pandemic, but it allowed mm -hmm. for telehealth to just expand virtually overnight. And now we have some really good case studies and the patient satisfaction is there. I think the provider satisfaction is there. And really the, the healthcare industry as a whole has had the opportunity to take a look at this over the last couple of years in a manner that I don't know we would have gotten to if it wasn't for the pandemic, you know. Right. It might have been a more gradual approach, but I don't think we would mm -hmm. have had, you know, rural health clinics and federally qualified health centers being distant site providers within a week um, if it right. wasn't for what happened with COVID-19 back in March of 2020. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, like you said, things changed with the pandemic with telehealth. Um, and, you know, I myself have used it. I There was a, a Sunday. It was actually Easter Sunday that I woke up on a Sunday morning and I had an infection and I was in pain and I was like, I have got to get something prescribed ASAP. Mm -hmm. And telehealth was the way that I was able to get that care and and to do that. Um, and so that's, I think, one of those examples of the patient satisfaction and the patient experience of not having to leave the house when you're dealing with something like that and to be able to just, you know, jump on your phone or your device mm -hmm. and, and have that interaction with your provider is so helpful. And to your point, very efficient, right? Um, but you know, during the pandemic, we know things changed. What exactly changed? Who changed it? <laughs> and what authority did they have to do it, right? Because part of me wants to say, well, wow, if it was just that easy to flip the switch, we should have done this years ago, right? But this was a unique circumstance. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what exactly changed, you can look at this from two ways. So I'll start with kind of the mindset towards telehealth, which I think for lawmakers just having been around it at the time and kind of looking back was, you know, there was a directive essentially nationwide that we were going to have to pause elective, um, you know, surgeries and elective procedures and elective, you know, conversations and consultants um, with your doctor. And essentially that changed the mindset pretty quickly because folks still needed to receive care. Like you said, I mean, Easter Sunday of 2020, if you have an infection, you still need it, but you might not be able to go into the hospital in the same manner you would have two months previously. Mm -hmm. So, what changed was right away, the first couple of weeks, there was a few big pieces of legislation on Capitol Hill that moved forward, but the biggest of which was the CARES Act, um, which was signed towards the end of March of 2020. And that really provided the spark for telehealth, I think, as we see it today. When we look back at 
some of the waivers that we're looking at. So distance site status for federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics, the ability to utilize audio only telehealth, the ability to get rid of geographical restrictions when it comes to telehealth. Those all part were part of the CARES Act. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about later on in the conversation on ways to make that move forward. But that was all changed by lawmakers on Capitol Hill. So some of the flexibilities came from CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, but a lot of it came from elected officials working on Capitol Hill to really tweak the law as we know it, the Medicare law and kind of how telehealth was able to fit in there. Of course, then some of the private insurers followed suit and it kind of became the the understanding way to move forward as doing telehealth. So the authority was right there, but they tied everything to the public health emergency. So that's why mm-hmm. this conversation mm-hmm. becomes more important today. Um, they tied everything to a date in which the secretary of HHS gets to decide when the public health emergency comes to an end. Obviously, it's not just a unilateral decision. There's a lot of factors that come into it, but right now it's extended to about mid-January. Um, it looks like we might get another extension. We might not. Usually they're 90-day extensions, which mean that it goes until about next April. Um, but some of the issue is we see whether it's telehealth policy, whether it's some of the Medicaid policies that we've been talking about over the last couple of years in healthcare, they're all tied to this date that's kind of a, a moving target. You know, I think if mm-hmm. we recall when I was on this podcast before, we were thinking that the public health emergency might have ended in July. Well, it didn't, and now it's right. here until January, and now it might be here till April, and it might be here till next July, but we don't really know. And um, so that's one of the things that we're talking about now, and we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more, and you guys were out in Washington advocating is there's a lot of policy tied to the public health emergency that's coming to an end over the next four to six months. And, uh, you know, it's kind of our job to kind of lift that up. But telehealth is, I think, first and foremost on everybody's mind. The one mm-hmm. thing I'll, I'll mention about telehealth is in March, they did extend telehealth for 151 days beyond the public health emergency, which is an exact number for a really technical reason, which was that they did it thinking that the public health emergency was going to come to an end in July. 151 months is, or 151 days, excuse me, is about five months. And that would push it until mid-December, which is when typically these big legislative vehicles are considered on Capitol Hill. Right now, though, we have telehealth for whenever the public health emergency happens to end, plus 151 days. So that was a really long answer of hopefully kind of the background setting up the stage for where we are today um, within telehealth policy. Right. The 151, that's funny. I was going to ask you about that. Like, why such a specific time? But now it makes sense. And it would have made more sense, of course, if the original target was met with the public health emergency. Yeah, it's very true. So, you know, obviously, as you've indicated, and as we have shared, we're at a much better place right now uh, for the utilization of telehealth than we were, let's say, in 2019. Um, And I, I will tell you from our perspective, and this is what I hear, you know, across our healthcare uh, community here, as well as in the state of Michigan, is that, you know, providers want this to continue. Uh, and, you know, you've answered very, very clearly the why and uh, in terms of why, you know, it, it exists and what we're looking at into the future. But I, I guess I, I want to focus on connectivity. You know, there is a lot of concern and a lot of issues surrounding rural communities that do not have connectivity. And so that's a huge piece of this, right? 
I mean, there, but I understand that there's some legislation pending and some funding. Maybe it's maybe not so much legislation, but funding for infrastructure. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Because you can have all the the best laid plans. You can have all the, the great ideas of having telehealth, but if you can't connect to the end user, it, it's ineffective. And this is our problem, Josh, in our community. And I often share this with uh, folks throughout uh, Lansing as well as Washington. We have here at Hillsdale Hospital some of our own management member teams that have no connectivity at their home. So they can't work remote, honestly. They, they're they in a rural area. They live remote. They can't work remote. Yeah, they, <laughs> they live, live remote. They live so remote that they can't they work can't remote. They can't work remote, if that makes sense. And so this is where we're at today. But I am not unique. Um, several counties around this area face the same challenges. And there were, you know, allocated dollars to provide funding, obviously, for connectivity. But it seems to be in this gray holding area. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think, um, you know, when we talk with folks on Capitol Hill or or you all do, whether it's state capitals or, or out here in Washington, I think it's, it, when we're talking about it from a rural standpoint, you can't talk about telehealth without talking about broadband within about two or three minutes. And, and it's really important right. to continue that conversation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I had a meeting it was about a year ago before the bipartisan infrastructure law passed, which is some of the funding you were talking about. We can get into that, but somebody made the good point. It was um, Senator Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia. We were on a call with her and she said, you know, back in the day, there was a time where utility poles weren't everywhere nationwide. And now we do have that. It's just going <laughs> to take time and it's going to take right. a lot of effort, both from folks in state houses and on Capitol Hill here in Washington. And so I think they made a step in the right direction last year. So they they passed the bipartisan infrastructure law, which was signed into law about a year ago this time in November of 2021. And I think it provided about $47 billion to um, the Commerce Department to put out and build out uh, broadband infrastructure nationwide, including some really good language to have preference to rural, um, doing a few things that mean you know, not overlapping services. So if you have a provider in, you know, your part of rural Michigan, not give dollars to a competitor to just overbuild that and have competition. Let's just build it out and get the last door connectivity everywhere in the country. But, you know, to to your point, it's going to take time. I mean, there is a lot of parts of our country, whether it's just outside of a town, 10 minutes, that's a town of 30,000 that doesn't have Wi-Fi or you know, looking way out into the rural parts of Montana or Wyoming, that's, you know, it's not even rural at that point, it's frontier, it's going to take some time to get broadband built out out there. And and I say that because while we're making the inroads, while the funding's pending, and it's being pushed out the door, and I think some of these projects are starting, going back to the telehealth policy side of it, we got to continue the audio only piece. Because in the meantime, the one thing that a lot of these communities do have is the opportunity to talk via phone and in the world yes. communities for them to be able to have the same access to the telehealth services that you might in Detroit or in Lansing, you would have to do it via phone. Maybe it's not via, you know, audio video technology. So that's something that we're really pushing for the continuation of that. We have that included in telehealth policy, but we bring it up in every conversation just to say, hey, you know, if we're looking at tweaking anything in uh, broadband or in telehealth policy, excuse me, don't cut out the audio only piece because that's that's really important just to do the talk 
over the phone and connect with your provider. So, so Josh, let me ask this question. Um, you know, and in, in individuals that are listening to this podcast may be questioning, where are the barriers? In other words, is it the payers? Is it the federal government because, in, in no offense, because they just don't know, because it's it's so new? I mean, truly, where are the barriers for the allowance of, you know, the reimbursement? Uh, if you could shed some light onto that. I mean, we don't typically hear Blue Cross Blue Shield or Medicaid saying it's inappropriate, right? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of barriers to it. it it's it's two part, and it's it's the same thing with any policy in in the world right now. When we're trying to talk about it on Capitol Hill, is it's how much does it cost, and yep. what's the vehicle for it to move, and the how much does it cost piece is kind of interesting. I think that was the biggest barrier to telehealth at the beginning, right? Was we don't really right. know what the sample size is. Well, they expanded it overnight. The issue is that we're just now starting to see data from 2021 that wasn't 2020. So I say that because 2020, there was the huge spike in telehealth because there was no other alternative. Right Mm -hmm. now, you're looking at it as a model where it's supplementing care, right? It's not something where we're duplicating care, but in a way, it's an opportunity to transition an in-person visit to telehealth. So I think in the long run, how it scores on Capitol Hill will ultimately be a benefit. Um, but it just comes down to cost. They haven't quite figured out how much it will cost in a legislative vehicle, which is why you only saw 151 days back in March. Um, we're hopeful to see about one year included in a year-end package, but that gets to the timing, which is we're getting to a point in Washington where um, you know you can take the elephant or donkey out of the room for a minute, and there's only so many legislative vehicles that move in Washington, D.C., and, and usually they're called Consolidated Appropriations Act of Pick the Year. And that means that because oftentimes the budget does not pass on time like it didn't this year, which is typically September mm-hmm. 30th, they mm-hmm. pick the can down the road until around mid-December, um, so right now that date is December, December 16th of 2022, mm-hmm. where they'll have to come yep. together and pass a, a bill. That bill will usually fund the appropriations that we think of every year. So that's things like the National Health Service Corps, Nurse Corps, Loan Repayment Program, some of those good rural health programs that we look to for just regular appropriations year in and year out. But to help mm-hmm. that legislative vehicle move and get more votes, they often tie non-budgetary provisions to it. So that's something like a telehealth flexibility package that could move along with that package. And that's where we're hopeful to see telehealth included. So that's kind of the timing. It doesn't really answer the barrier because I don't think there's opposition. Nobody's up on Capitol Hill really saying, hey, telehealth is bad. I think there's an overwhelming consensus that it's good. It's just finding the right time for it to pass and finding how much it's going to cost. And that'll ultimately determine the cost piece will determine how long of an extension we get just to depend how much money they feel comfortable spending in a year-end package. So with that said, um, that kind of tells us, you know, why is this important right now is because this is, you know, coming up and we have this um, hopefully <laughs> appropriations bill coming December 16th um, or right after that. But how can rural hospitals get involved to advocate for continued reimbursement for telehealth, especially with the audio only piece? Because my understanding right now is that CMS has basically said, we don't have the authority to continue audio only. And of course, you know, the payers often will follow what CMS does, all the commercial payers. Um, 
even though it's been done all this time, right? So what should rural hospitals be doing? How can we get involved to not only ensure the continuation of telehealth reimbursement, but that critical audio-only piece? Yeah, it's reaching out and telling your story. I mean, simply put, I was on... Uh, or I was up on the Hill this morning with a meeting from a couple of representatives from Minnesota. And, you know, I can talk about these issues till I'm blue in the face, but if it's not coming from their constituents, the, the tie to the district or to the state just isn't there. Um, you know, I, I can talk about the policies, the need for tweaks, but it's the everyday story, right? It's, it's the impact yeah. that audio only has in your community where, you know, your management doesn't have the ability to even work from home, let alone have a doctor's appointment from the comfort of their home and the need to continue audio only or the need to continue investment in broadband, just given that, you know, you're a constituent. So I think the first thing is just telling your story. It's so important. You know, you can't you can't underscore the the impact that rural health has in our communities because back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, we're the biggest employers in our community. We are the central point for care and kind of keeping that community moving forward and ensuring that folks don't get sick and that they stay well. So knowing that we have kind of that tie and importance to the community, using that voice to push for change or push for the continuation of telehealth is critically important here. And I think not seeing these reimbursements lapse is something that um, folks know, but they need a little encouragement and make sure that they're going out on the front lines and saying, no, this is really important to me in, in rural Michigan or in rural Idaho. You know, we need to have this flexibility here moving forward. And here's why. You know, um, partisan issues uh, that impact Congress, whether they're social issues or spending issues, uh, are oftentimes clearly defined and there's a line in the sand and, and, and we know that from each side. Um, I guess the question that I have is, as you look into the Josh Jorgensen's crystal ball, uh, and what would you see in the next five years um, that policy regulation or what's necessary for telehealth to continue? And the reason I talk about the partisan is, I think generally speaking, this is pretty nonpartisan stuff, right? I mean, it's access to healthcare. I, I don't know how it could have a side. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you could help understand that a little bit. But uh, if not, what does that five-year forecast in your mind look like and or what should it look like? Yeah, I don't think there's much opposition to it on Capitol Hill. I mean, I mean, frankly, it's, it's something where... Um, folks recognize that it's just been a benefit. It's been a benefit to folks in rural areas. I talk about that because that's the constituency we work with, but we also know it's a benefit to folks in, in urban Detroit, in urban New York City. I mean, it's it's a benefit in urban, in rural, in suburban areas. And, and that's something that really is unique in healthcare because it's tying everybody together and it's a, it's a really good benefit. Um, you know, I think the biggest key, my opinion, is removing the language from the public health emergency um, picking a date, yep. I hope it's December 31st of 2024. That would be about two years from now, which would be a lot of guarantees for telehealth, at least for two years, we wouldn't have to deal with this. But even if it's December 31st of 2023, it's no longer tied to the public health emergency plus 151 mm-hmm. days. Like, let's get rid of that and just have the policy kind of move on its own. You know, you talked with Carrie, I think, on a previous episode about the low volume hospital and Medicare dependent hospital, which is critically important. That's no longer tied to 
the public health emergency plus X amount of days or, you know, pick a piece of legislation plus X amount of days. No, it's now December 16th of 2022. Well, it kind of gives a hard deadline for folks on Capitol Hill to make a movement on and it removes it, removes it from everything else within the public health emergency, which for better or worse, has become politicized a little bit um, mm-hmm. throughout the country. So I think that would be really important. The only thing I would quickly add that, you know, we are hopeful to see in telehealth policy is um, while we're making these changes is trying to make any tweaks that we want to see happen early on. Because as we see, it gets harder and harder to tweak policy when you get into a one or two year cycle. Um, For example, if you're trying to make changes to the Conrad 30 J1 visa program, I know there's a bill to kind of expand those waivers and ensure that we have more visas for rural hospitals and, and hospitals across the country. It's harder to do once it's set in stone in law because it costs money later on. So it's earlier, it's better to make these changes earlier. So the one thing that we're really making a push on besides emphasizing the need for audio only is payment parity between in-person and virtual care for rural health clinics and federally qualified health centers, because the way they're reimbursed is such a significant gap in the reimbursement um, that by 2028, it's going to be about a hundred dollar discrepancy between in-person and virtual services. So ultimately if you're the rural health clinic, you might not invest in telehealth knowing that the reimbursement will be better if the patient comes in to receive Mm -hmm. care. So Mm -hmm. that's one thing that we're trying to do just to ensure that there's payment parity, not only for just virtual and in-person, but between rural health clinics and rural PPS hospitals or urban and suburban hospitals moving forward. So we're working on that tweak too, because as we get later on, and it's going to be harder to tweak the policy. But I think the first and foremost thing that we can do in telehealth policy is just moving the can away from the public health emergency, get rid of that language pick a date so that way they just act on that in a silo moving forward and not tied to all the other issues that um, are tied to the public health emergency. Is there a, in your mind, is there a future where telehealth becomes, you know, just like all these other services that we provide where it's not a continual, oh, we got to extend it or it goes away. We got to extend it or it goes away. It becomes a, you know, kind of kind of like a, a contract where it, uh, you know, renews automatically unless you cancel kind of thing, like a subscription, you know, <laughs> where we don't have to every year or two years, you know, fight again to say, hey, don't let this go. Make sure you make sure this stays. I mean, obviously, everything's always being looked at and new, you know, the new rules um, and the prospective payment system rules come out every year and there are changes. But there are a lot of things in there that we never really question if if those certain things are going to be reimbursed still. Um, So is there a future when telehealth looks like that? I wish I could say yes, but I don't know, right? I, I mean, it's, you know, take the low volume hospital or Medicare dependent hospital. I've had 45 meetings over the last month. Nobody said that they're opposed to those designations. Why are they Mm -hmm. included? Because it makes it easier for people to vote on it on Capitol Hill when they need to pass the budget because you can't let those expire. Otherwise, rural hospitals are damaged. And there's, it's not just those provisions. They're everywhere in every industry. That's why they're sunset in a lot of ways. Um, So I don't know if we'll ever see it. You know, um, the only alternative that, the alternative world in which I kind of view things is, if you have a never ending provision, let's say we just permanently extend telehealth next month and we all celebrate, um, which we would, it would be fantastic. But the issue would be, it's really hard then to tweak the policy to go back and say, right. how, do we, how do we make changes to this later on? Mm-hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of a plus and negative to to doing it, you know, permanently versus a continuous cycle. The thing mm-hmm. I always look to is when it's something like telehealth. It's so bipartisan. It's so popular that although it's coming up for renewal every so often, I think there's a pretty wide uh, acknowledgement that this needs to move forward. And I think that would just continue well into the future as well. Yeah. Right. You know, Josh, you indicated uh, and mentioned two items that I really just want to touch briefly on because it does impact hospitals like mine. It's the low volume adjustment. So LVA and the Medicare uh, dependent hospital. And uh, those designations are are important to hospitals like mine due to the volume uh, and the fact that we have a disproportionate number of government payers versus commercial insurance. For example, 70 plus percent of my population is Medicaid, Medicare. And so we really rely and depend on these programs to provide additional reimbursement in, in upwards of millions of dollars, right? And so a removal of these programs uh, would equal major devastation for hospitals like Hillsdale. And we're not alone, obviously. Uh, in rural communities, the majority of the payers typically are the government. So this has a significant advantage across the country. And so I guess my my question to you is, as we have listeners across the country uh, and hospitals are listening just absolutely holding on to every word you're saying, is how does this look for us in the next Congress. Uh, Is there hope that LVA will continue uh, in your mind? Yeah, I I feel pretty good about it. You know, it being included. So back to the September 30th date, which is when typically government funding is supposed to be renewed or they're supposed to address it and pass a new budget for the next fiscal year. Unfortunately, if you've tracked it in Washington, I don't think since I've moved to Washington, they haven't done it on time, which is like seven years. And I think it's been 20, 30, 40 years before that. So anyway, they typically have to piss, pass a uh, continuing resolution for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And then they address it later on. The reason why I bring that up is because included in that continuing resolution was the low volume and Medicare dependent hospital designations, bringing it with the continuing resolution until December 16th. To me, that signals the mindset on Capitol Hill, recognizing that these hospital designations can't lapse. Otherwise, it could have lapsed, right? Because it was supposed to be a really clean continuing resolution. And that's not a clean provision that costs money to bring that along with it. So that, to me, acknowledges the need to extend it longer term. They just didn't do it in that legislative vehicle. So now we're looking at how do we do this in December, There's pieces of legislation that have been introduced to make those designations permanent. And Rachel, you know, it's kind of similar to what we were talking about with telehealth, Mm -hmm. where um, Mm -hmm. doing it in a five-year increment seems to be what they've liked to do on Capitol Hill. I think they did it for five years back in 2018 or 17, and that brought us to Mm -hmm. today. Um, Right. If I had my Josh Jorgensen crystal ball, I think we'll see anywhere between one to five years. And and I think it'll be closer to that five-year number because that's what a lot of folks Mm -hmm. have kind of pointed to on Capitol Hill or in pieces of legislation that have been introduced. But if you talk to all the lawmakers, whether it's in Michigan, South Dakota, Minnesota, I've talked with folks all across the country, there's nobody saying we need to end these programs. It's just finding the time. And the time is really this end-of-year package in December. And that's why you know, I'm here today talking about these issues and, and why the need for advocacy is so important to share the story mm-hmm. about the importance of these programs and so many others to be continued in that in that package. 
What about, um, do we have any updates on travel nursing agency regulations at the federal level? I know last time you were on, we talked about how do you even look at that? Do you, you know, use consumer price index, you know, what's normally looked at for things like price gouging? Um, but is there any movement on the federal level? I know some states are, are doing some things. Michigan has a bill on the table. Um, but what about Congress? You know, the federal level for items that have a lot of teeth, I don't know if we've seen it. I think a lot of the state houses are taking more um, actionable items that that should hopefully kind of clamp down on some of the actions that have been taken by traveling nurse agencies. Um, There's a few pieces of legislation, one bill introduced in the House and one in the Senate um, to do a study on what happened over the last couple of years with traveling nurse agencies and kind of examine the toll. And it has a really good call out to rural communities and kind of the toll that this has happened and this has had in uh, access to care or in the workforce shortages that we've seen due to kind of the price gouging, as you talked about. Um, But the prospects for that, I'll be frank, I don't know if it's something that's moving. It might just be something that's kind of floating out there. But that's kind of the, the best piece. I don't know if in the new Congress, there might be oversight hearings looking into something like that. That could mm-hmm. be something as we kind of remove ourselves from the kind of plunge of the pandemic policy and kind of examine what happened over the last couple of years. Hopefully that's something that's examined. Um, but for, you know, true regulatory burdens on those agencies to impose them from stopping doing that, I haven't seen anything. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, the last item that we want to just really talk about quickly Uh, is heavy on the minds of many hospitals across this country. Again, an impact of millions of dollars is 340B. And wow, that's just, it's it's a challenge, obviously, uh, because there are some major pushbacks, uh, pharma and some other things. Uh, And so, but the impact to local hospitals like ours, who participate in contract pharmacies and as we look at building an oncology program is again, millions of dollars. And in a time in which most of your hospitals specifically rule are operating on no margin, you know, to remove any dollar is devastating. So what's your outlook and your forecast for 340B? You've had a lot of people on Capitol Hill talking about it lately. Yeah, there's a lot of people talking about it, but um, there aren't a lot of true legislative packages or pieces of legislation that folks are kind of looking at in that vein. The one, the one bill that we look to is it's called the Protect 340B Act, which would essentially um, prohibit PBMs and health insurers from um, taking discriminatory actions against the 340B program or 340B covered entities, but that doesn't really solve the contract pharmacy piece or some of the right. other limitations that have been imposed by uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers over the last couple of years. So I think we look at the Protect 340B Act, which is a really strong bipartisan bill in the House as kind of a stepping stone to conversations, hopefully in the 118th Congress, which you know, we, we just had a midterm. We haven't talked about that yet, which is shocking. But uh, we had our midterm last month or earlier <laughs> this month. And the new Congress starts in January. And I think, you know, 340B is going to be something that, you know, our association, I think a lot of other associations are going to want to continue having conversations with uh, lawmakers on to try to bolster that program. Um, but I can't give prospects just because it's so hard when there's not a lot of 
pieces of legislation or legislative proposals out there to really um, point to and say, hey, this is moving through X committee. That's just not really happening yeah. right now, like right. in the telehealth or mental health spaces um, that other, you know, some of these other priorities are moving. Mm-hmm. We'll continue to advocate for us, as I know you do. Well, and also, uh, this episode is airing on uh, December, December 1st. 1st, and on December 6th, NRHA is doing something pretty important related to advocacy, correct? Do I have the date right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's the whole week. So it's December 5th through the 9th. We are doing oh, a okay. advocacy virtual fly-in. Um, you can find all of the information on our website, and you're more than free to sign up. And we have uh, state contacts, I think, in like, 37 out of the 50 states, which is pretty strong. And we're, we're hopefully growing that to a little bit higher. But if you sign up, you'll be put in touch with your state contact who's going to be setting up meetings um, with elected officials. And you'll be able to have those conversations and act and advocate on all the priorities we've been discussing today. Excellent. And so, you know, this, this is airing on December 1st. We have four weeks until uh, the end of the year. What's it look like in Washington, D.C.? That's just a it's just commentary today. What's it look like in D.C.? Is everybody going to be home? Uh, is the work over? Obviously, what's dependent on that is the continuation of government running. But uh, is, you know, leadership's going to go through some changes here, we understand. So is it is it an exciting time in D.C. in December? Uh, you know, every two years in December, it is, it is, insane. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's actually just one of those things where, uh, I think every year I've lived out here, it's, it's a, uh, December package is dropped and there's like 2000 pages and you have to sift through what's the good, the bad and the ugly, and then they vote on it. Um, and that's, I think for better or worse, what we're coming towards mid December here. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if they have to pass a one week or so continuing resolution to kind of iron out the details. That's pretty common, but I would Mm -hmm. assume before new year's we'll have funded the government. That's the only projection I have. And if I'm wrong, then I guess we'll have to deal with it in the new year. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Josh, you know, once again, we've thoroughly enjoyed this time together and we could spend hours uh, talking about all the issues that impact rural health care in America. And uh, I just want to, on behalf of Hillsdale Hospital, thank you for your advocacy efforts and for what you're doing for us as rural hospitals, as our voice. We can't get to Washington. We do maybe every once in five years, but you're there every day. And you're, you know, rubbing elbows and you're in committee meetings. And we truly appreciate that because you're our voice on the ground. So on behalf of Hillsdale Hospital, on behalf of Rural Health across America, we want to say thank you uh, for your advocacy work. And thanks for joining us for your second appearance uh, (laughs) on uh, Rural Health Rising. We truly appreciate your time today. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And before we close, we love to do a segment with each of our guests. We want to know what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? Or maybe your second most since you've been on the show true. before. Yeah, <laughs> you are from rural America. I was thinking about that because I think the last time I was on, I shared that I went to the Laura Angle Wilder pageant. Yes. And- oh, yeah. That you was did. kind of fun. Um, I guess I'll pick, you know, this this past summer, my, my parents have a lake cabin up in uh, northeastern South Dakota. So my girlfriend and I went back and it was one of those horrible lake days where it just decides to rain all day and it's like 70 degrees in July and it's 
awful. And so we uh, we ended up just kind of going from small town to small town and going to some of their different restaurants and bars and and just kind of popping around. And it just I don't know. There's something about it that just reminds you how how much fun rural and small town life is because everybody in there is just has a different story and it's always um, really fun. So I think that was the most recent fun experience I had was just kind of driving through yeah. northeastern South Dakota, which is about as sparsely populated as it gets and uh, <laughs> and stopping into different watering holes along the way. Yeah, that's fun times. Well, once again, thanks for joining us today, Josh. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.